Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome to Know Your Bible. We're glad you're back with us today as we try to answer some more of your questions about the Bible or uh, about topics that maybe we might find an answer in the Bible for those kind of topics. Uh, that's the way we operate. We let the viewers direct the program. All you need is that phone number and website at the bottom of the screen, and you can call and tell us what you'd like us to talk about. Our goal is to help people know the Bible better, and uh, if you've got questions about it or something you've always wondered or maybe something you've always doubted uh, that you think is in the Bible, We'd be glad to talk about that with you and help you understand your Bible a little bit better. So that's the uh, way the program works. Just give us a call or log on anytime and uh, you tell us what to talk about. Let me introduce my co-host, Mr. Toby Levering. Hi, Toby. Hi, Steve. Glad you're back and ready to go. I'm Steve Tandy, and I think I'm studied up and ready to go. Let's see if we can answer a few of these, but uh, let's see if our viewers can answer one first. We'll give you through the program to answer this. Who was nicknamed The Rock? Uh, and this is in the Bible now, not in the movies. So uh, somebody in the Bible is nicknamed The Rock, and we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program. See? of you and your family know that one. Toby, I think you drew the first one and uh, get us started. Okay. Uh, yeah, viewer wants to know, what does the Bible mean by becoming one flesh? And is it a sin? <clears throat> well, the term becoming one flesh uh, refers to the physical union between a man and a woman that happens in the bond, the covenant of marriage. Uh, specifically, the act of uh, sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. And of course, that's a physical act, but uh, it's also much deeper than that. God designed the becoming one, uh, that act as something that bonds a man and a woman uh, for a lifetime, because that was what marriage was designed to be, uh, one man and one woman for one lifetime. And as God designed that, He uh, designed the act of sexual intimacy to bring a man and a woman together to be not only closer physically, but emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. It is the, the, the I've used this illustration in the past, the glue that holds things together. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Bible has a whole book devoted to the description of a man's sexual relationship, love relationship with his wife. And so uh, God certainly didn't have a problem with that in the right context. Uh, now, <clears throat> the question is, is it sinful? No, not in the covenant of marriage, not at all. In fact, it's necessary. It, it, it holds the family together. It holds the, the marriage together. The problem is um, when you take that glue designed to hold the marriage together and you start uh, using it outside of uh, places where it shouldn't be used, then it becomes a problem. When you start becoming one with lots of people or with other married people or um, uh, using it in ways outside of the context which God designs, then it not only is sinful, but it creates a host of problems for families and people, lots of heartache, and that's just what sin does. Let's look at Matthew chapter 
chapter 19, verses 4 through 6 together. Here's what Jesus said about marriage. He said, He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, <clears throat> what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So that's what becoming one is all about, and uh, that's how it holds things together. All right, a good explanation there. <clears throat> Thank you. Well, we got a science question here. A viewer wants to know uh, Genesis says God created light on the first day, but the sun wasn't made until day four. Please explain. Well, that's a good question. Uh, how can light be there before the sun was even created? And let me give a little science explanation first here. Uh, think of a flashlight. If I push the button on a flashlight, what would happen? Light would come out. Now, all I did was make light with a natural process. Uh, batteries went through wires to a light bulb with a tungsten filament in it and made light. There's other ways to make light. You can light a piece of paper and the fire will have light in it. Uh, you can explode gunpowder, there'll be a big explosion with light in it. Uh, all of those we have discovered through science that's in nature, those are ways to get light. But think back to the creation when there was nothing. Uh, not only weren't there flashlights or <laughs> gunpowder or anything, there wasn't light. The concept of light wasn't there. So that's what God created on the first day. Uh, let's just go through Genesis uh, kind of quickly here and let me give you this order and maybe it'll make a little bit more sense to you. Uh, verse 1, before he made light, let's go back. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He made all the raw material. There wasn't anything. There was nothing. So he created all the raw materials uh, to make the heaven and the earth because the next verse says, the earth was formless and empty and dark. So it was just a big soup of all the raw materials, I guess would be a good way to describe it. And then he said, verse 2, let there be light. So he made all the raw materials to make the heavens and the earth. Then he created this thing called light. And I call it a thing because even science today can't quite figure out what light is. <laughs> it's so unique. Though. It's what we know about it. So he made light and saw that the light was good. And then he separated the light from the dark. He put the light over here and the dark over here and he called that day and night. Now you say, how in the world did he do This is creation, folks. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. But he moved light over here and day over here so there were two separate compartments in the world. Then day three, um, and I think I've got a little outline of this we can look at on the screen. Yeah, in Genesis 1-3, you read about day one. He made light, he made day and night. Genesis 1-6, on day two, he made the earth and the heavens. He took that raw material uh, and he separated it into the heavens and into the earth. And then on verse 14, day three, he made the sun and moon and stars and put them in the heavens. And he said the sun would be the source of of light and it would depict seasons and years and, and he had a reason for putting it in the sun. Okay. So you can read all that there in the first chapter of Genesis but I think the main point our viewer is asking is creating light is different from creating the sun. Sun's just a source of light. 
uh, a lot of other sources of light in the heavens. Uh, but the one he made for earth was the sun, and he calls the moon a source of light, and we know it reflects light, but it does give us light at night by reflecting it. So creating lights, a whole lot different than making a sun. Mm -hmm. Both of them are really hard, <laughs> <laughs> but God did them. Something neither of us could do, <laughs> no. for sure. <laughs> All right. So All right. If you were asked the question, does the Bible talk about Jesus as a child or a teenager? And the answer to that is not very much. Uh, in fact, very little is said about Jesus' early life. Of course, we know famously the, the Gospels, uh, all of them talk about Jesus' birth uh, and that, that story and when he was presented at the temple. So he was, you know, that kind of covers the zero to two age. And then it fast forwards to when, his, uh, when he was about 12 when he was uh, talking with and discussing matters of the law with the teachers at the temple. And uh, that was where he got separated from his family and, and they found him and, and he said, I had to be in my father's house. And those are the only two pictures that we get of Jesus before his uh, public ministry uh, when he was about 30. So we have several gaps in there and I admit myself it is kind of an interesting thing to think about what was Jesus like as a, a little boy or uh, a, a tween we might call him or a teenager even uh, what was he like in those times and I think uh, the Bible's clear there wasn't anything in that time which was uh, incongruent with his life in public ministry it was of course he, he was just less well known um, and uh, we have to surmise that he was still sinless uh, and he still obeyed what his father wanted him to do. Um, but specifically to answer your question, there's nothing in the scriptures that speak about his time as a child or teenager. Uh, the closest we got is Luke 2.52 and we'll look at that on the screen. It says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And I think that's good advice for uh, uh, all of us to grow in wisdom and stature with God and with other people. So that's the answer. Right. Thank you, Toby. Let me take this moment to talk about a good way to study the Bible. Uh, we spend a little time each week studying a few questions with you, and we hope that educates you a little bit about parts of the Bible, but there's a whole lot more. And that's what we hope we can help you study in your own home. We've got some free materials uh, that we send out. And uh, actually it is free. I know a lot of people that watch religious TV programs here, free offer, and they get nervous because they've sent their name in before and all of a sudden they're on mailing lists and getting begged for uh, to be put in the will and <laughs> everything else. Uh, that's not the way Know Your Bible operates. We never ask for money. Uh, we just want you to study the Bible and we've found some pretty good tools to help you do that. Lots of ways to study the Bible. Ours isn't the only way, but this is a good uh, overview of the Bible we start with here in this set of lessons. There are eight lessons you've seen on the screen. Old Testament and New Testament are the first two. Uh, if you always wondered what the difference was between those two parts of your Bible, uh, that's the first thing you learn in this course. So gives you a good overview and then a lot of other topics in the Bible. And then once you finish this one, if you want to keep studying, we've got a lot of advanced courses that uh, get you really deeper into the Bible. You can learn a lot of the Bible with uh, Know Your Bible Study Tools. So use that phone number or website. Uh, let us know you'd like it and we get it started for you immediately. All right, I got a hard question here. In fact, one I really can't answer uh, because it's asking why do people 
not believe that there's a God. And I empathize with this questioner. Sometimes I shake my head and say, how can anyone not believe in God? The proof is so awesome just in nature that you know there's a God of some kind all around the world. Doesn't matter what the civilization is, how primitive, whatever, within man, anybody, everybody figures out there's got to be some kind of God. Uh, they may attribute it to the thunder or the volcano or the ocean or whatever is most dominant in their culture, uh, but they'll come up with some explanation uh, for how this earth works. There's some divine, powerful being uh, that makes it work. So to ask, how can somebody not believe in God? Uh, I'll give you a scripture in just a moment, but let me... What I think it says is it kind of confirms my deep down belief that there's nobody that really doesn't believe in God. I think they choose to deny Him. They choose to suppress uh, any belief in Him. And they work really hard at disproving Him. Uh, that's the only reason I can think of why atheists buy billboards and things like that. Uh, to convince people they're in the God. Why do they care if there isn't a God? Uh, I think deep down they know there is a God. And they're trying to get other people to believe what they supposedly believe. Let me tell you why I think that. Let, when, let's just read it from Romans chapter 1 beginning verse 18. Paul's talking about civilization and how godless and wicked people, uh, what they're doing. And he said, they suppress the truth by their wickedness suppress the truth. So that implies they know the truth. Then he says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. <clears throat> that verse summarized, says if you look at creation with an open mind, you can see that there's got to be uh, something eternal and something divine, something bigger than us that made all of this and keeps it working and functioning and designed it and all of that. Uh, it, it's clear. In fact, Paul says there's no excuse <laughs> not to see that. And we understand that at a very <clears throat> basic level. The old story about the guy that worked with a fellow that claimed to be an atheist, and overnight he hung some styrofoam balls on, from the ceiling of his office that looks like the solar system. And when the guy came in in the morning, he said, who did that? And the guy answered, well, nobody. It just happened. And the guy said, oh, that's stupid. And somebody had to make it. You know, styrofoam balls, we understand. That couldn't just happen. But to look at the universe and think it just happened, uh, Paul said there's no excuse for that. <laughs> so what I think that means is everybody really knows there's a God. But because they want to do what they want to do, because God is a moral force also, they deny His existence. They suppress that truth. And they go to all lengths to try to get everybody else to believe that there is no God. Uh, that's my only answer. Uh, I think anybody that looks at creation and thinks about it for more than five seconds got to realize there's a divine power there somewhere. 
Uh, it's been said that the nature creation is the 67th book of the Bible <laughs> and proves the existence of God. So I, I, I think that's the answer is people really know, they just don't want to admit it. <laughs> it's hard not to look around and just everything you see almost testifies to the glory of God. Everything so. does. I, yep, no excuse it says. <laughs> <laughs> All right, person wants to know about uh, the doctrine of baptizing for the dead. They say, explain why Mormons baptize for the dead. Well, in discussing other religions on this program, I always make an effort to say we are not an expert on all other religions. Our goal is to give you the Bible straight. So I try to deal with it fairly. Uh, anybody who's uh, of the Mormon faith who might be watching this, I hope I'm treating it correctly, but I just went to mormon.org and kind of did some research and here's what they say about that particular practice which they observe. It says, <clears throat> we learn in the New Testament, again this is not me, this is mormon.org, that baptisms for the dead were done from the Apostles Paul time uh, as noted in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. This practice, this is what they say, has been restored with the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The prophet Joseph Smith first taught about the ordinance of baptism for the dead during a funeral sermon in August of 1840. And uh, then he announced that the Lord would permit church members to be baptized in behalf of their friends and relatives who had departed this life. Well, that's uh, the very simple explanation of why they do it. They believe that you can baptize someone um, after their death and that that can have an effect on them in the afterlife. Uh, however, I believe there are several problems with that doctrine. I understand uh, where Joseph Smith, uh, he did get that from 1 Corinthians 15, 29, uh, but he wasn't uh, doing a great deal of service to the hermeneutic. He wasn't, as they say, cutting it straight with Scripture. Uh, when you look at a verse, as we've talked about many times in this program, you have to take it in context, uh, number one. Number two, uh, if you interpret a verse to mean something and that interpretation is directly contrary to other verses in Scripture, uh, Scripture doesn't argue against itself. Uh, you have to make that all reconcile together. And so if you've got a doctrine that's based purely on one verse, there's usually a problem with that. It needs to be uh, true with all of Scripture uh, and not just one interpretation of one verse. So uh, one problem is, <clears throat> if you think about it, uh, up until eight, the 1800s when Joseph Smith uh, made this doctrine, uh, people uh, understood the gospel in a very simple way as the scriptures tell it. In Gal Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, Paul said this to the church at Galatia. He said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is very clear. The gospel is clear. It's for all. And the plan hasn't changed. It wasn't like we went from you know, Jesus' time to the 1800s uh, having one form of the gospel and, and, and then revelation came to Joseph Smith and it all changed. So that's one problem. Uh, the second is, as we said, they take one verse and build an entire practice and theology around it. I think that's always dangerous. Uh, the third problem is it, it removes the free will of the deceased. Uh, if, if a person lived their whole life in rebellion to God and disbelief in God, maybe they were an atheist, and then all of a sudden 
generations later, their great, 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 great grandchild decides to baptize them. And, you know, that seems very contrary to the message of the gospel, kind of overriding their free will and the decisions that they made in, in this life. Uh, and number four is Scripture tells us clearly that after we die, our judgment is set. Our status, uh, status cannot be changed uh, once we enter into the eternal realm. Uh, let's look at this verse from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, which says, A people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So I hope that was a fair explanation of why they do it. Um, I understand their explanation reasoning. I just don't think that coincides with the message of the gospel as found in Scripture. All righty. Thank you. Good answer, Mr. Toby. <coughs> Viewer wants to know, is it biblical for a woman to be a minister? <coughs> now, let me answer it <coughs> this way. First, depends what you mean by minister. Uh, the word minister in its basic form just means servant. Uh, so, uh, a woman can be a servant of others. A nurse is a, uh, she serves the sick. Some people might call her a ministering angel uh, because that's what she's doing. She's ministering to people. But I'm sure this viewer is talking about the, the word minister applied as a public proclaimer of the gospel in a worship assembly. That's what we use our term minister for. Now, there's lots of female servants, lots of ministering angels in the church, uh, but the one who proclaims the gospel, proclaims the truth uh, in the worship assembly, uh, Paul's very specific about it, that he wants that to be a man. He wants male spiritual leadership, and that's a principle from Genesis through Revelation. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.12, let's look at that and confirm it. Uh, Paul's talking about the worship service now. He's not talking about anything else. He's talking about in the worship service. He says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Uh, she used to remain quiet. He wants male spiritual leadership uh, in the worship assembly of the church. Uh, also in the eldership, male spiritual leadership there is what he uh, <clears throat> specifies through the Holy Spirit. Uh, so that's what the Bible says about it. Now, it's not about ability. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with ability. I know that some women can teach an excellent lesson. Uh, I've seen some preaching on TV that I thought were horrible also. But I could say the same about males. <laughs> some can teach really well and some teach really poorly. Uh, so it's not about ability. It's about the role in the church that God has specified. And the only reason he gives us for that is that's why he created things. When Peter and Paul and others give any kind of explanation for it, they say because that's the way God created things. Because of Adam and Eve, because of the beginning uh, in the church, there's supposed to be male spiritual leadership. So the questioner asks, is it biblical uh, to be a public proclaimer in the worship service? No, it is not according to Paul in 1 Timothy. Let me take this moment and invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. Uh, we're programs presented by the Churches of Christ were kept on the air by a number of different churches that help us uh, uh, pay the bills and stay on. We like to recognize a few of those each week and uh, tell you where they are today. And every once in a while we will talk about the home church of Know Your Bible. And today is one of those days. 
uh, Wichita, Kansas, up on North Meridian on your way to Valley Center, if you up in that area, or you can get there pretty quick from anywhere around Wichita with the uh, bypass system and all that. So come visit us sometime. Uh, drop in, see us, uh, meet Toby and I, and Bill's still around, and a number of other folks will be glad to meet you. So uh, stop in and see us. Whatever market you're in, if you're looking for a church home or if you just want to thank some folks for providing the program for you, uh, look up at Church of Christ and tell them thanks for keeping this program on the air. All right, Toby. Okay. Got a Sermon on the Mount question. Uh, Jesus, or a person asked, Jesus said, just looking at a woman can be adultery. Does this apply today? Well, let's look at the scripture where Jesus said that in Matthew <clears throat> chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman uh, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So my answer to your question is yes, it absolutely does apply today. And Jesus, as he did in the Sermon on the Mount, was setting a standard. Uh, you know, in the old law, they had a certain level of behavior. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount in particular, drills down deeper to the level of the heart. Now, what he's not saying here is, uh, you know, it's wrong to uh, see a beautiful woman, and there are lots of them, uh, and, and to look at her and say, wow, she is beautiful. Uh, I think God made women that way, of course, to be the attractor, the person who uh, draws the attention, and that's perfectly normal and natural. What is pr the problematic part of it is when you begin to gaze on her with lustful intent, when you begin to covet her, her flesh. Uh, in a way that's impure or imp and improper. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, the lustful intent. So yes, it does apply today, and we ought to guard our eyes and our hearts very carefully uh, against uh, lustful intent and keeping our hearts pure as well as our bodies. Let's read Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which the uh, writer there said, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So... Alrighty, <coughs> squeeze one more question in here. Viewer wants to know, how can you be ordained to do weddings, etc.? Well, uh, depends. <laughs> it's pretty easy these days, actually. Uh, if you're a member of a denomination, they've got their own standards. You have to ask somebody that's in charge there. Uh, they've got their own rules, and you may have to go to seminary. You may have to pass all sorts of tests. I don't know what you have to do in every denomination, but they got their own rules. Uh, within the Churches of Christ, we have no headquarters, uh, so our le local leaders, the elders, uh, will give us a letter of commendation or ordination or whatever you want to call it that the state would recognize that we are ordained to do the work of the church. Uh, today I said it was easy. Uh, here's one website you can go to. Uh, welcome to Open Ministry. Get up ordained for free and perform legal weddings. So you can look that one up and find out a good way to get, I don't, well it's not a good way probably, but it's a way to get ordained. Uh, and most states probably would accept it. I don't know all the legalities of it. Uh, the basic legal test of it is you have to be certified or ordained to perform the sacraments of the church is what the federal law says and that's to give communion to perform weddings to perform funerals and things like that within the church so uh, you go you can get you can do it online today <laughs> if i'd have known it was that easy <laughs> pretty much pretty much all right let's get our trivia question answered today who was nicknamed the rock 
The rock was actually a name for Simon, who was called Peter, and Peter's what actually means rock. So the most famous apostle, Peter, was the rock. Glad you've been with us today. We're going to be back next week to answer some more questions. Hope you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.